0: Spring break is coming up. Uh, many of you will probably be going somewhere. Um, some of you might be taking road trips. I love road trips. Uh, I, I remember when Sarah and I first started dating, um, she didn't live in town, she lived um, in Alberton. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Alberton, it's not a good place. Like when in, in the Gospels, when people see Jesus and they're like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, that's pretty much Alberton, and uh, and but it's like 45 minutes that way, and I remember how much I loved the time when I would like have to drive her home or something like that, because I'd have this like 45 minute road trip just with Sarah where we could be cute and I could talk to her and see what she liked and we could talk about our relationship, we could talk about. Jesus and the gospel and hobbies and dislikes, and it really was um, a wonderful time, and so there are road trips where you guys get that, and maybe, you know, you just, you, you enjoy the company of the road trip, regardless of how long it is. Um, that could be easily countered, though, with our road trip we took to the men's retreat this past weekend, where all we listened to was Darren Fouth's Christian death metal um, the, for, like, five hours there and back. Um, and, and I we listened to it on the way there, and I was getting ready to like, put my foot down and not allow it on the way back, um, but then my wife surprised me, and I stayed over there, and so I just got Snapchats from other people on the van who were being forced to listen to death metal, um, and so that's a bad portion um, of a road trip, and so as much as road trips are pleasant in other areas, they can also make you uncomfortable uh, in other areas, and, and actually, in our text today in the book of Mark, um, we're, we're seeing a road trip. This whole thing happens on a road trip. And I think it happens because they have all this time to talk and to think about things that are happening. And we see two stories that happen on this road trip. Um, but here uh, is Noah Lee, uh, who spoke to us last week. He addressed this at the end. And this kind of frames our discussion today. And so this is kind of the setup um, of what's going on. Verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road. Going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So you see these polarizing things that are happening. Some are amazed at Jesus, some are afraid of Jesus. And Jesus, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus and his crew are heading up to Jerusalem. Um, They're taking the road to Jerusalem. And and this is the road Jesus is walking to his death. This Sunday is Palm Sunday. Uh, The next Friday is Good Friday. If you guys are here on spring break, I encourage you to come join us on Good Friday. Easter is that following Sunday. And we're entering not only the Easter season here um, as we celebrate as a holiday, but we're entering the Easter portion of the Gospel of Mark. We're seeing Jesus beginning to walk the road to his death. And what I love about um, road trips is that it gives you that time to think about things. And Jesus just gave the disciples A lot to think about. Because here Jesus, the one they've been following for some three years now, is marching to his death. And he's telling them, and they're wrestling to understand what it means that Jesus is going to be handed over, that he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, that he's going to be flogged, spat on, and killed. And so that's a big nugget for them to discuss, and really the two stories we're going to see here only make sense in the shadow of what we just read. They're wrestling with this. They're trying to figure out what it means. Maybe if some of you guys are upperclassmen on spring break or going home for the summer, you're wrestling with what is it I'm going to do after this? What am I going to do this summer? What do I want to do with my degree? This is a bigger thing they're wrestling with knowing that Jesus is going to die. And so only in, in, in the awareness of what just happened can we begin to understand what this means. And his followers are trying to understand if Jesus is going to die, what does that mean for us followers? How, does that, how, do, how are we going to follow this Jesus who says he's going to rise, die, and rise again? And what we're going to see tonight is that following Christ requires a right view of Christ's victory, a right view of glory, and a right view of calling. Victory, glory, and call are two, three things that we're going to look at tonight. But first, we want to pray. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, as we enter the Easter season here uh, that you, you have come, that you have come, that you have lived, that you have died. But more importantly, just we thank you that you have risen again to life. It's because you are risen and ruling God, because you are God who beat death, um, who beat sin. That is why we gather here. That is why we exist. It's because you have not only saved us from physical death, you've saved us from eternal death by bringing us from death to life and purposing us to do things here on earth. I thank you, Lord, that it's the, the, the thought of heaven and of what you've secured for us in the future that makes us better citizens of this earth. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for your text tonight. We thank you for your word and your son. We pray in your name. Amen. So what we're going to see tonight, kind of the two stories are going to be broke up into two perspectives. Um, But inside those two perspectives, we're going to see three wrong views of what it means to follow Jesus. That's often called discipleship, following Jesus. Three wrong views of following Jesus inside of these two perspectives. And the first story highlights the view and perspective of the disciples. Uh, And this first section helps us see what it's like to do what I call discipleship from above. And what I mean is, is we're talking about the disciples here. And many times in the Gospels the disciples are seen as ignorant and foolish and they're just not clicking and they're not tracking with what Jesus is saying. But they really are true believers. They love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. And so this portion captures what it means to follow Jesus from above the spiritual poverty line from people who have all of the capacity, all of the resources to see and treasure Jesus rightly. What does this mean for us as Christians above that line to be followers of Jesus? And so this, is, this first section is for those of us in here who consider ourselves Christians. What does it mean for us? And so while on the road to Jerusalem, we pick up this passage today, we'll read verses 35 through 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, This cup that I drink you will drink. The baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. So one of my favorite movies growing up, I'm not sure how many of you have seen it, um, is called The Spy Who Knew Too Little with Bill Murray. Has anyone seen that in here? No one. Okay, watch it. Okay, spring break is coming up watch The Spy Who Knew Too Little, because the premise is this. Uh, Bill Murray's this American who comes over to England to visit his family, and he's in London, and his family doesn't really like him because he's awkward and he's bumbling and he's not very bright. And, so, uh, and, and his cousin's having this big business meeting at his house, and so he just doesn't want Bill Murray to be there. But London has this thing called the live theater. And the live theater is you go, and it starts at this phone booth, and you get a call on this phone booth, and it tells you to do something, Um, And and in doing that, you enter into this play that's unfolding in front of you. And so you become a participant in this play and it carries you across London as you interact with these fictional circumstances, Um, but you're doing it. And so you're not just watching a play, you become part of it. But the twist happens is that when he gets to the phone booth, he picks up the phone and it actually, he beat this espionage, this spy agent to the phone booth. And he answered this call from the spy organization. And so the, what happens is this guy gets sent on this real espion, international espionage mission, mission where like, they're like trying to bomb parliament. And he thinks he's living this fictitious play. And so people are dying, and he's thinking they're fake. Like he picks up dead people and he's like, You're great at this. I can't even feel your pulse. And he's going and he thinks people are shooting like rubber bullets at him. But he's involved in this real thing and he's completely oblivious to all of it. And he thinks it's this big fun joke. But he's doing this crazy disarming of bombs while it's happening. He has no idea what's going on. He's just enjoying the ride. And James and John must be living this similar life right now. Because they really have no clue what's going on. They're doing it, they're interacting with Jesus, they're hearing Jesus, they're seeing his miracles, but they're unable to grasp the weight and reality of what it means to follow Christ. You see, even the way they approached Jesus showed how clueless they were of what's going on. Because did you see the question they ask? They go up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. That's a bold question to give to Jesus. See, here James and John approach Jesus Christ, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the firstborn of all creation, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, the Son of God himself, to whom and through him are all things, Will all authority will be given in heaven and on earth. And they come up to him and they say, dance, monkey. Do whatever we ask. Can you imagine that? The nerve to just go up and say that. I mean, I think of just at our house the other night, Owen Owen was supposed to be in his room watching a movie, and he came out during community group and was sitting on my wife's lap quietly, and Sarah started to talk, and Owen grabbed her mouth and said, Shh, you need to be quiet, Mom. Um, Because he wasn't allowed to talk out there. And and as funny as it was, like, who is Owen to tell Sarah how to act? And if there's, I mean, Sarah's of the same substance and of the same manner as Sarah. He's just younger. Jesus is of completely different credentials than James and John. And this story, what it goes to show is that, thank goodness, God didn't make us God. Because if I was God in this circumstance, I would have destroyed these two guys. Like, to use the word, like, kill wouldn't be enough for me and my arrogance, what I would do if two minions like James and John came up and said, do for us whatever we ask you to do. And yet, in his grace, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He lets the question play. Knowing what's on their heart, he asks them this piercing question, what do you want me to do for you? That's a big question from the Savior, isn't it? Knowing of who Jesus is, you personally, if Jesus asked you that question, how would you respond? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Because the way in which you answer that question Communicates a lot about what you actually believe and how you view Jesus. Look back at this dialogue, verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am to be baptized? And they said to him, Yep. We're able. And Jesus said in this cup I drink, you will drink. In this baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so this first wrong view of Jesus, this first wrong view of following Jesus, is is that we should not be overly triumphant. We should not be overly triumphant. And what do I mean by that? I mean James and John looked at Jesus, and they want the kingdom Now. They want the promises of Jesus now. They want the rule of Jesus now. They want the reward of Jesus now. And they look at this They say, we have the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem. Rome is represented there. Jesus, when you kick down the doors of Rome in Jerusalem, let me sit at your right, let James sit at the left, and we will rule this together, the divine trinity of ruling. Let's let's work this kingdom. They still think his earthly kingdom is going to appear suddenly and they want not just to be with Christ, they want to reign with Christ. Why? Because at this point, just like we would be in this circumstance, James and John are struggling to see that Jesus is altogether different from them. That he is of a different caliber, a different nature, a different type of ruler. And Jesus asked them that question. And us knowing the full story and seeing how Jesus prays before the garden and uses this term cup, we know how foolish they are of answering this, right? Jesus says, can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? And they think they could do that. The problem is only Christ can drink that cup. Only Christ can endure that baptism. Instead, they think because they're going to Jerusalem, because they imagine this champion Jesus rolling in to take down Rome, they're like, you know, we've reached the pinnacle, Jesus. We could take it from here. Rest easy. Sit on your throne. We've got this. We can take care of the the task. We can run the kingdom. Look out, James and John to the rescue. Have no fear. The sons of Zebedee are here. They're killing it right now. They're on their high horse. They're thinking they're rocking it. You see, I have a friend who works for the Oakland Raiders, which is cool. I love the NFL. And so to be in that position, like, I'm zealous for it. Pretty similar, like, James and John are. They're part of Jesus' 12. That's a big deal. And yet, my friend, she works in media relations um, for the Raiders. And as much as she's a part of the Raiders... It would be foolish for her to think because she works for the raiders that she has the same power and authority as the owner of the raiders. It doesn't work that way. It would be foolish for her to think this because working for the raiders is not equal to being the owner of the raiders and laboring for Christ and belonging to Christ is not the same as ruling as Christ. Is not the same of being Christ in and of yourself Setting yourself up as this Messiah who is to be praised because you've done much. And yet so often, we look at ourselves as fully sufficient in and of ourselves. We are what matters. We are what the world needs. If the church would do ministry like I do ministry, if people would look at the Bible like I look at the Bible. You see, the flaw of James and John's view of following Christ is that they failed to see the manner of the kingdom. And in so doing, they failed to see the manner of men they actually were. They weren't set apart to be physical rulers. They are set apart to be laborers of a different work. They lacked the right view of not only the mission, but of Christ's role inside that mission. And Jesus goes on he says, you know what, you're going to drink this cup. You're going to be baptized in my baptism. But it's not because you've accomplished it, or you've earned it, or you've merited it, or you deserve it. You're going to receive these things because I'm going to give them to you. Now what Jesus says there is twofold. He says Jesus is going to take the cup of God's wrath for you. Jesus is going to be baptized in death for you. You can't bear that cup. You can't bear that baptism. But Jesus will bear it. And Jesus will offer you the life that comes from him bearing it. But on the other hand, Jesus is like, you, my 12 disciples, you'll bear this cup. You will be persecuted. You will be hunted down. You will be killed. In your time, you will know this cup I'm to take. And see, to have a view of following Jesus, which is overly triumphant, thinking that you've accomplished everything that you've become, everything, it'll ultimately lead you to burnout because it's a wrong expectation in this life. You are not the Christ you will not experience your best life now. You will not meet unrivaled victories at every corner. You will not be seen as glorious or abundant or prosperous in this existence. You will be disappointed at the cost of discipleship, and you will eventually burn out. But that victory is coming. That glory is imminent it will be seen but at that day people will not be bathed in the glory and honor of you they'll be bathing in the glory and honor of the Christ who is capable of drinking that cup of passing that baptism and this leads us into our second wrong view when looking at discipleship from above discipleship is not a position of worldly glory we see this in mark 1 picking up in verse 4 or 10 Pick up in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who consider themselves rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For Christ came The Son of Man came not to be served, but to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, after James and John go up to Jesus, do whatever we ask you to do, Jesus. And they say, hey, we want to be your co-leaders. We want to rule with you. We want to reign with you. The other 10 disciples, I love the word it uses, become indignant, boiling, off-put anger surging through their veins. In one sense, it's probably due anger because of the nerve of Peter or of James and John, right? Who are you to talk to Jesus that way? I know how angry I get when Owen talks to Sarah with disrespect. There was probably some good anger in that. But also, I think the majority of this is, who do you think you are that you deserve that? James and John. Right? Peter's like, did you walk on the water? Was that you? They're weighing in their heads. Judas is looking at this and he's like, dude, if you guys were in charge of the money, you'd be sunk. You can't rule with Jesus. You can't balance your own checkbook. And all these disciples are weighing in their own heads. Why not us? Why not me? You see, it's hardwired inside of us that we want to be seen as better than others. Each and every one of of us has that hardwired inside of us at a certain level. And ultimately, it's because we want to be made much of. We want to be seen as something great. I remember, uh, I don't, well, I do remember, but it happened just today. Somebody followed me uh, on Twitter. And the first thing I did, I saw the name, and I said, I don't know it. How many followers do they have? Why do I have influence over this person? Do I have more followers, or does he have many followers? And through his many followers, I feel like something because I'm being followed. We want to be in a position of authority because we want to be served by those under us. We want to be seen as something special because we want to be sought after as a commodity. We want to be seen as somebody who has something. We want to rise above our peers so that our peers will in some way have to yield to us. It doesn't have to be this, we don't, we're not asking to be carried around on a throne through campus, but we are asking to be seen. And we're asking to be seen as we think we ought to be seen, not as who we are actually seen. And remember, Jesus is talking here to his followers He's not talking to the crowds. He's not talking to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's talking to his followers. Because deep, even in the heart of Christians, we wrestle with finding an identity viewed in Christ's view of us rather than culture's view of us. We jockey for position. Even inside of the spiritual things we do, we want to be seen as holier than others. We want to be seen as stronger than others, more devout, better at Bible study, better at prayer, better at reading, more spirit-filled, more missional, more knowledgeable, more well-read, more affluent, more, more communicating clearly the gospel. We want more evangelism to be seen as tied to us. Good things, but we want it for our fame, not for the results. We want to be seen. But Jesus illuminates this desire in his disciples Look back at verse 41 through 45. I'll skip to 42, actually. And Jesus called to them, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus shows the fallacy that worldly power and authority doesn't really exist here. You're always under somebody else's authority. Even the President of the United States ideally yields to Congress and Congress yields to the President of the United States. There's no one with with uninhibited authority in our world, and even if you think you have authority, death has final authority over you. One day you will all obey death. It's just like, authority doesn't exist. Power doesn't exist. The, the chain of command is never ending. Even those who seem to be in a position of authority here, they have someone, and, and Jesus uses, words, uses his words carefully, he says, they have someone who lord it over them. Someone who has the ability to have ownership, power, and influence over them. And so often, that's what we desire with honor and glory. It's not just to be someone worthy of honor or to be worthy of someone with glory. In our heart of hearts, in the depth of our wickedness, we want to lord our position over others. We want to have the audacity of James and John and say, do whatever I ask. Look at me. Why wouldn't you want to serve this? Why wouldn't you want to yield to this? We want people to know we're better than them. We want them to see that insurmountable gap that separates you and them, and we become a heart bent inward on ourselves, thinking only of what this means in relation to me, myself, and I. But Jesus says, you disciples must be a slave to all. And you see, in chapter 9, Jesus says, he says, the first among you must be a servant of all. But the disciples aren't getting it, okay? Servants were low in this culture. Slaves were lower. Jesus is upping the ante here by using this word. It's piercing, it's biting, it's degrading, and it's all around them. And Jesus says, you will be a slave to all. That's so polar to how the disciples saw themselves being being viewed. It's so foreign to how we desire to view ourselves. but this is only the beginning of the scandal of discipleship. You see, Jesus doesn't merely say, you need to be a slave. (laughs) I'm Jesus. You guys need to be a slave. That would make sense. But he speaks of himself in a way which should humble and stir all of us. Look at what Jesus says about himself. In verse 45, for even the son of man, as Jesus referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, as much as this text is talking about Jesus' followers, Jesus is talking about himself here. The greatest among this group of men is the one, The singular one in the text who will be their servant. The one in the text who will become last for the sake of the others. Why do they not need to worry about arguing about the greatest? Because Jesus is the greatest and he came to serve. You see, this is where Christianity departs significantly from other religions. It does that in lots of places and lots of ways, but this is a very common one because in other religions, it's this God who is seen as holy and mighty and pure and worthy of adoration and praise, and it's just his subjects who serve. You must serve out of a debt you owe to God. You must serve to earn something before that God. You must serve to appease him. But the scandal of Christianity is that this holy other, this wonderfully pure, this sovereign, benevolent, ruler God sent his fully divine Son to be both the present ruling king but also the faithful suffering servant. God in all of his glory came to serve those who were far off. Look at Paul's words in Second Philippians 2. Or 2 Philippians. <laughs> Bible quiz, you lost. Um, In Philippians 2, verses 4 through 11. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Here's the presiding principle. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christianity is not for those who want to elevate their standings before earthly men. It's not for those who wish to rise above the ever-changing status quo. It's not for those concerned with worldly accolades and temporary prestige. Christianity is for those who see the weight and service of Christ. The God-man who took on human flesh and humbled himself to come into our world to take on our flesh in all of its messiness. Not standing on the sidelines surveying the damage from the throne of his divinity but rolling up his sleeves and going shoulder deep in the pain and hurt of this broken humanity bearing the scandal of our sin and the weight of depravity on his royal head. Becoming the ransom for the lowest of the low the swine of the earth facing humility and shame dripping with the spit of the soldiers and the sin of the sinners. And then and only then having been led to death on a cross in his humility, being raised once more to the fullness of the glory, to the praise of God the Father, where one day every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow, not to the fame and fortune of what you have done or what you have done for God or what you have done to merit, but at the humble and exalted Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not only the model of servanthood. He's the means of salvation. Through which we'll be conformed to his very likeness. Jesus is the model and the means of discipleship. This is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Are you transformed by Christ's service and salvation? Are you transformed on a spiritual level, but are you transformed on a physical level? Is that manifesting itself? For those of you who sit above the spiritual poverty line, this is the information your privilege wish. This is what you're called to know. Is this portrait of discipleship the identifier of your life? Is this how people view you? If it's not yet, let's allow the second story to sift in us and bring some clarity and hopefully some motivation. Where the first story dealt with the disciples, those above the spiritual poverty line, the second portrait is discipleship from below. Someone who is not yet a believer, but who gains that belief. We see this story, the story Shayla read at the beginning. Mark 10, 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, still on the road to Jerusalem. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me receive my sight, recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So I love this story. I love the, the, the vulnerability that Mark paints in these healing stories. And I love it even more in contrast to this previous story we just saw. Because in the previous story, we have James and John. Two of the three men who saw the transfigured Christ on top of the mountain. That glorious moment where Christ was seen in all of his divinity and the kingdom made sense and Jesus as Messiah made sense and the law and the prophets were fulfilled in him and God spoke down and said, this is my son, follow him. They saw that with their own eyes and even outside of James and John and Peter, who is with them on the mountain. The other, 12 the other nine disciples are there. These are the ones who saw with their own eyes Jesus speak to the wind and the waves and calm the sea. Jesus called the dead girl back to life. He saw him with his mouth heal men who were lame and cast out demons who could not be cast out. And yet, in the midst of those who have witnessed the greatest glory, it's blind Bartimaeus who truly sees It's blind Bartimaeus who has the right vision of who Christ is and how we respond to him. You see, at one point, we're all blind Bartimaeus. Not because we're blind physically or even because we're blind spiritually, but like blind Bartimaeus, our eyes have never seen the physical acting glory of Christ here on earth. We haven't seen the miracles of Christ. We haven't seen the healings of Christ. but We've only heard who he is what he's done, and who he claims to be. See, what this story goes to show in one sense is for that those who seek Christ from below the spiritual poverty line, those who are desperate for a Christ who cares, for a Christ who serves, for a Christ who saves, this word, this gospel, this good news is sufficient. It's sufficient to stir in you the cry of Bartimaeus, And with amazing clarity, Bartimaeus cries out from the roadside, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And by using that term, Son of David, what he's going as far to say is, Jesus, true King of Israel, prophesied Messiah, have mercy on me. If you're looking for what it looks like to have an authentic cry of salvation, that's it. If you're wondering the words to say before a sovereign God at the conviction of your depravity, be with blind Bartimaeus and say, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's sufficient and it's good. And yet, even in the presence of this beautiful plea, what do the disciples and the crowds do? They rebuke him, they tell him to be silent. Why? Because they're on the road with Jesus going to Jerusalem, this triumphal entry where Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom, and it'll be all roses. Who needs blind, broken Bartimaeus? Quiet with yourself. Jesus is accomplishing something greater. But, like many of you have experienced, when an authentic plea for Christ is in your heart, you don't care the opposition. You don't care who says be quiet. You don't care who says you're being weird. Why? Because you see your need and you see the source. And the more the crowds tried to silence Bartimaeus, the more he cried out, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, on a path to the predetermined point of God's glory, stopped. He said, call him. They brought him to Jesus and look at what he said and throwing off his cloak he sprang up and came to Jesus and Jesus said to him what do you want me to do the exact same question he had just asked James and John he asked blind Bartimaeus and a blind man said to him Rabbi let me recover my sight You see, unlike the disciples and James and John who desired glory and honor above and over men, Bartimaeus just wanted to be a normal man. His request to Christ was to be made wonderfully ordinary. You see, the disciples wanted to be seen as great in the eyes of man. Bartimaeus just wanted to be a man who saw Christ greatly. He didn't care how he was viewed. He wanted to have (laughs) the right view. He wanted to see rightly. Pay close attention to what happened as a result to Bartimaeus' request in verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You see, Jesus is faithful to heal those, to answer those, and to forgive those who come to him in broken humility. But we also see something else. Bartimaeus, who started this journey on the side of the road, ended his journey on the road. You see, Jesus even freed him. He said, go your own way. Your faith has made you well. Go do what your heart desires to do, Bartimaeus. And what does he do? Because of what Christ has done in his heart, he joined the followers of Christ on the uphill path to the cross of Golgotha. You see, this is the final point of discipleship, the final incorrect view, is discipleship is not a static, passive, sedentary existence. How do we know blind Bartimaeus had a right view of Christ? Because his view of Christ led him to follow Christ. You see, he moved past his previous state and he became someone who became actively engaged in the mission and following of Jesus. To follow Christ fully is to become active in his plan and his purpose and join Jesus on the road that he has set for us. You see, in this text, not only do we see a change of Bartimaeus' life, but we also see a great change in the life of the disciples You see, in verses 35 through 45, the disciples are arguing and angry with each other because of the pride in their heart concerned only of their standing before men. In verse 48, the disciples in the crowds hear the plea of blind Bartimaeus and they tell him to be quiet and rebuke him because the kingdom of God is coming. We don't need your blind eyes or your lame legs. But then something amazing happened. Verse 49 is, is what the weight of this text to me And Jesus stopped, and he said to the crowds, he said to the disciples, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. The call of Jesus not only changes our position before God, but it changes our actions, and it changes our message. You see, what the disciples said in verse 49 is a lot different than what they said in verse 48, rebuking Bartimaeus. What they said in verse 48 is a lot different than what James and John just said. Grant me to sit at your left hand and at your right hand as you reign in glory. You see, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ is to join with the rest of the redeemed and cry out to a wounded humanity, take heart, Get up. Jesus is calling you. That's our message. That's our hope. That's our task. Those who have been redeemed by Christ join in the realized call of the redeemed. And we go forth as his followers, and we proclaim his truth and we serve his people and we enter into the mire and brokenness of humanity to share the message of salvation, which cannot be found in anyone else. And we serve and we are slaves because we have been freed by a message of beautiful submission to the plan of God, the wrath of God, the glory of Christ, and the freedom from sin. You see, we cannot afford to be unconcerned with our world because we need to serve that world in our actions and ultimately in our message. You see, following Christ truly for you who are in here is not mere head knowledge. It's not punching your your card or getting your stamp to ultimately one day end up in heaven, unconcerned with the life you're living here on earth. Following Christ requires a right view of your victory found only in Christ and in Christ alone. A right view of your glory found ultimately in Christ and Christ alone. And a right view of your call wonderfully purposed to labor for Christ and Christ alone. So my concluding question to you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? In light of who he is, in light of what he's done, in light of your salvation, what do you want Jesus to do for you? It's the very question that was asked to James and John, the very question that was asked to blind Bartimaeus, and the very question you'll be held responsible for in your own life. What is it you want the Savior of the world to do for you? My prayer is that your answer would be, make me into this kind of follower. Save me into this kind of salvation. Redeem me, heal me, purpose me, use me. Make me a slave to the glorifying task of discipleship. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for those who look up at you from below the spiritual poverty line. Have mercy on us in answering our feeble, broken cries for salvation and restoration and clarity and forgiveness. But Lord, more importantly, because we treasure the conversion of the lost, Have mercy on us in discipleship. Grant us a clear vision of what it means. Grant us a clear vision of the victory that is assured, that is coming, that is beautiful, but that entails hard and definite work in this broken world as we proclaim a kingdom of perfection. Lord, grant us mercy to see the greatest glory which comes not in our gain here on earth, but in our gain in Christ, on the cross, in the future, for eternity yet to come and grant us mercy in seeing our call to go not only with the message, but with the results of salvation to those who are lost, to those who are the least of these, and say to them, get up, take heart. Jesus is called.